This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting the reads and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. If you lived in the Los Angeles area in the mid to late 1940s, depending on which district your home fell into, you may have been represented by one of two congresspersons. Future President Richard Nixon or former actress and opera singer Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was also one half of a Hollywood power couple with her husband, actor Melvin Douglas. Nixon and Douglas, who were elected to the House of Representatives in 1946 and 1944 respectively, were on opposite ends of the political spectrum at the tail end of a time when there was an actual political spectrum when there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, and politicians occasionally broke from party ranks and collaborated with rivals. Our current state of political polarization is the result of processes that really kicked into gear around this time, and the flattening down of political possibility into two equally compromised parties would get worse over the 1950s, as candidates began managing their platforms for television. A major flashpoint in this transition was the California Senate race of 1950, in which Douglas ran against Nixon. It's not much of a spoiler to tell you that Nixon won that election, and from the Senate seat, he vaulted into the top tier of American politics. Two years later, just six years after his political debut, Nixon became Eisenhower's vice president, and though he'd lose to Kennedy in 1960, By 1968, Richard Nixon was president. Her defeat to Nixon marked the end of Helen Gahagan Douglas' time in public office, thus ending one of the most promising political careers of any woman of the era, not to mention the first nationally prominent political career of any man or woman from Hollywood. And though there were many factors that went into Nixon's win, 
including, as we'll see today, dirty tricks and endemic corruption, the major issue of the campaign was communism. Nixon had been a key member of the House Un-American Activities Committee during the 1947 Hollywood hearings. When he and Douglas were on the campaign trail in the summer of 1950, the Hollywood 10 finally exhausted their appeals and started going to prison. In this climate, Nixon was able to brand himself as a successful hunter and prosecutor of Reds and paint Douglas, who had vocally opposed HUAC and its activities, as not just soft on communism, but herself a Hollywood pinko. Today we're going to talk about Helen Gahagan Douglas's fascinating life and career, her marriage to Melvin Douglas and her eyebrow-raising relationship with Lyndon Johnson, and her political aspirations, which were sadly cut short, not just by the man she branded Tricky Dick, but by the national hysteria that also made the Hollywood blacklist possible. This episode may seem like a bit of a departure for this series. It's not a story about blacklisting, exactly, but it does reveal the larger reverberations of the events that caused the blacklist, showing the potential benefits of going along with the mob, in more ways than one, and the potential consequences of trying to stand up for the persecuted. Join us, won't you, for the story of Helen Gahagan Douglas and Richard Nixon. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Helen's mom, Lillian, had once had aspirations of acting and singing opera, but her husband, Walter, had given her an ultimatum, forcing her to give up her career in order to keep him. In her father's mind, Helen wrote, actress and whore were interchangeable. When Helen was growing up, her father stressed education. If she didn't learn to think, he told her, she'd end up as nothing but a breeding machine. Helen took her father's advice, but not in a way that he liked. Her version of thinking for herself was pursuing the passion that her mother didn't get to, of acting and singing. She enrolled at Barnard, where she was spotted in a school play and cast in an off-Broadway play, which led to a starring role on Broadway proper. Walter Gahagan was opposed, but this time, he couldn't keep the woman in his life away from the theater. With her Broadway debut, 22-year-old Helen Gahagan became an overnight star. The press fawned over her beauty, and roles on Broadway kept coming. Like her mother before her, Helen was torn between acting and singing opera, and she threatened to throw away her stage career in 1927 when she followed her opera teacher to Germany to study for the summer and then decided to break her theatrical contract and sing full-time. As it would turn out... Helen would divide her time between Broadway and international opera houses for the next few years, spending a few months here preparing to sing Tosca in Czechoslovakia, a few months there starring on Broadway and enjoying a showmance with Tyrone Power Sr. By the late 1920s, 
Helen Gehagen was one of the highest paid actors on Broadway. But in the stock market crash of 1929, she lost $100,000. In need of work to pay her bills, she reluctantly agreed to star in what she thought was a shit play for impresario David Belasco. Perhaps it was just a little too close to home. Tonight or Never would star Helen as Nella, a would-be opera diva who can't sing Tosca with the passion it requires until she loses her virginity. 30-year-old Helen was no virgin, but long-term romance had eluded her. Or maybe she had eluded it. In any case, she had never really fallen in love. But Tonight or Never, and her co-star in it, would change that. The actor Belasco was determined to cast as Nella's love interest was a 29-year-old born Melvin Hesselberg in Georgia to a Jewish-Latvian immigrant and a Southern belle. Helen was skeptical, so Belasco suggested she meet him. When Melvin Douglas walked into the room, Helen had her guard up, her hand on her hip in defiance. But when she got a look at him, her defenses melted away. As he left the room, Helen thought, that's the handsomest back I've ever seen. Melvin Douglas had seen Helen before, on stage in Chicago, where she had appeared in a Turing production, and he had been blown away by her beauty. But he had no access to a star of her stature at that point, and he married another woman, had a baby with her, and then left her. When he met Helen, Douglas was divorced with just two Broadway credits to his name. But Snyder never would make him a star, and the overwhelming romance the two entered into would change Helen's life, too. An intellectual and political progressive, on one of their early dates, Melvin showed up with a stack of reading for his new inamorata. We can't go through life just making love, Melvin said. We've got to study, too. Helen had grown up in a Republican family and had never thought about thinking any other way. But she was so in love with Melvin that she was able to open her mind to his point of view. They married in 1931, on Melvin's 30th birthday. Tonight or Never was such a hit on the stage that Samuel Goldwyn bought the rights to make a movie and brought the whole cast out to Hollywood. The whole cast, except for Helen. Goldwyn had bought the play with the intention of casting Gloria Swanson in the female lead. This was okay with Helen because she had a low opinion of Hollywood. But for that very reason, she was annoyed when Goldwyn offered Melvin a five-year contract. She reluctantly accompanied her husband to Los Angeles and used the forced hiatus from the stage to concentrate on her singing. She also started paying attention to current events, listening to the news and reading newspapers seriously for the first time. In their travels from New York to Los Angeles, Melvin and Helen had seen firsthand the effects of the Depression, effects which had just been abstracts before. She felt a compassion for the jobless and the downtrodden that made her an outsider at dinner parties hosted by her fellow Republicans. After FDR came into office in 1933, Helen shocked her family by registering as a Democrat. In October 1933, Helen gave birth to her first child, and six months later she returned to the stage in a play directed by Melvin. It was a flop. The couple were close to being broke, 
And Helen started regretting having turned down offers for her own studio contracts when they had first come out to L.A. Then RKO called and offered Helen the lead in a film called She, which would be producer Marion C. Cooper's follow-up to his smash hit, King Kong. The story of two male explorers who stumble onto an ancient civilization ruled by a beautiful, sadistic, immortal woman... She is a nutty oddity, the kind of film that seems like it was destined for exhibition formats that wouldn't come along for decades, like MST3K and nightclub video wallpaper. Visually, with its Art Deco sets and Egypt meets proto-disco costumes, it seems like an influence on everything from the Maleficent character in Disney's animated Sleeping Beauty to John Singleton's video for Michael Jackson's Remember the Time to the last act of the original Ghostbusters. It doesn't really work as a film, but it is something to see. It's hard to get a sense of Helen's acting talent from it, because she's given only the most absurd things to act, but her beauty and her presence are of another time. Not in the sense that she fits the otherworldly vibe that she is going for. It's more like a silent-era vamp fell asleep and woke up in 1935. This would be Helen's first last, and only film, to the mutual satisfaction of the actress and the industry. But just as she was becoming fully certain that she wanted no work in Hollywood, her husband's screen career began to click, with films like She Married Her Boss, The Gorgeous Hussy, and Theodora Goes Wild, Melvin was establishing himself as a handsome matinee idol who was a worthy object of desire for strong female superstars like Claudette Colbert, Joan Crawford, and Irene Dunn. He was regularly seen around town escorting such stars to parties and premieres, and gossip columnists began speculating that these photo-op dates were less than strictly professional. While Melvin's career was booming... Helen left for a European opera tour, which led to a contract to sing Tosca in Vienna, a dream come true for her. But before her debut, Helen found herself having coffee in Vienna with a British music critic who began trying to recruit Helen to the Nazi cause, apparently unaware that Helen was married to a Jew. Helen was so sickened by the experience that she canceled her contract and flew straight back to Los Angeles, and then, upon arrival, took a taxi straight to the MGM set where Melvin was shooting. She showed up in his dressing room and said, I'm not going back. I'm not going to sing Tosca in Vienna. And then she burst into tears. Her opera career was all but over. Weeks later... Hitler invaded Austria, where Helen would have been singing Tosca at the time, had she not chosen principle over professional success. This was, in essence, Helen Gehagen Douglas's first political action, and it would set a template for her future as a politician, in that, in the long view, it was the morally correct, right-side-of-history move, but in the moment, it was the hardest thing to do, and doing it put her at a personal disadvantage. Back in Los Angeles with a European opera career off the table, Helen didn't know what to do with herself. First, she got pregnant. Then, after giving birth to her second child at the age of 38, Helen threw herself wholeheartedly into activism. 
She and Melvin both joined the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League and began speaking out against Hitler and the march of anti-Semitism in Europe at a time, as we saw in our Dorothy Parker episode, when advocating the defense of oppressed peoples against the aggressions of a foreign trade partner was not a popular thing to do. The powerful people in Hollywood, many of them Jews, didn't know how far Hitler would go, and they didn't want to cause a fuss. Melvin remembered that his activism was looked at skeptically by Louis B. Mayer, who reportedly said, What do you care about Hitler? If they want you to say Heil Hitler, say Heil Hitler. What's the difference? Years later, Mayer would point to Ninochka as evidence that his studio had always ridiculed communism. But Douglas, who starred in that film opposite Greta Garbo, wasn't able to use the romantic comedy as a shield. Helen had other causes beyond Nazism. She was moved by the plight of the Okies, the migrants who were pushed off of Midwestern farmlands by the Dust Bowl. And through her friendship with Dorothea Lange, Helen began advocating for aid to these displaced Americans. Helen's efforts on this front attracted the attention of Eleanor Roosevelt. And soon, Helen was taken under the wings of the First Lady and the President. Helen was appointed to the advisory board of the Works Progress Administration, the massive New Deal agency designed to create all manner of federal projects to put Americans back to work. When FDR ran for a third term in 1940, Melvin became the first Hollywood star to be named a delegate at the convention, and Helen came along. There she both sang the national anthem and was elected the Democratic National Committee chairwoman for the state of California. Helen was perhaps given this position in part because of the expectation that she would be able to mobilize Hollywood to vote for Roosevelt, which she did, and in part because the Roosevelts liked having her around. When FDR needed a break from the stress of being president in a time of world war, he'd invite Helen over for cocktail hour and press her for the true stories behind the gossip reported in the movie rags. But the chairwomanship wasn't an honorary or empty title. This was Helen's real entree into politics, and she immediately discovered that she wasn't suited for it, at least in the minds of the establishment, for two reasons. For one thing, she was a woman, and the men in charge all seemed to harbor a veiled or even open contempt for women in power. In order to keep them in check, women were often tasked with menial or housework-like tasks, like making coffee, while the boys did the real work. And Helen was a particularly dangerous woman because she didn't believe that donors should be able to influence politicians with cash. This was the other area of rude awakening for her, the extent to which political change occurs not because a politician believes it's in the best interests of their constituents, but because a special interest paid for it. When the U.S. entered the war, 41-year-old Melvin enlisted and was sent to India. He and Helen would be apart for the duration and would never really live together romantically again. Even putting the strain on their relationship aside, with Melvin not collecting a movie salary, it was up to Helen to support their two kids. She had to let all of their household help go and for the first time in her life, learn how to cook and clean herself. Finally, she put her kids in boarding school and embarked on a trip to Washington. It was time to get serious about
about getting into politics. In Washington, Helen stayed with her best friends in town, which meant she was staying at the White House. She sat in on sessions of Congress and was amazed that nothing happened. Nothing got done. When a local L.A. congressman approached her and told her he was retiring and asked if she'd run for his seat, Helen said no. But FDR talked her into it. Despite her cozy relationship with the Roosevelts, Helen's first election was an uphill battle. Most of the women in Congress in the mid-1940s had inherited their positions after their congressman husbands had died, and there were only seven of them in a body of over 400. And the seat she was running for was to represent a district that was mostly foreign to her. Though the district included a portion of Hollywood, it also stretched south to include what is now called South Central. Many of the constituents were non-white, blacks and immigrants living in segregated neighborhoods and struggling to rise above the poverty line. Though the Los Angeles Times and other papers branded her red from the beginning, that didn't mean as much as it would a few years later. And the stars were on Helen's side. Samuel Goldwyn and David O. Selznick helped fund her campaign, and Rita Hayworth and Ronald Reagan vocally supported it. She won, by a narrow margin, but she won. It took so long for letters to arrive to Melvin in India that he had to learn that his wife had become a congresswoman by reading it in the serviceman's newspaper, Stars and Stripes. Helen Gahagan Douglas's six years in the House of Representatives seemed to have been a mixed bag, although it's a bit hard to tell from the press coverage she got at the time, which was apparently almost entirely focused on her looks. It should be noted that she didn't manage to pass a single piece of legislation. But she made an impact, largely through protest. At the swearing-in ceremony for new congresspeople in January 1945, Another fellow freshman, John Rankin, essentially announced what would become the defining issue of that era of Congress by asking to make permanent the House Un-American Activities Committee, which had been essentially dormant and whose original leader, Martin Dees, did not have a seat in Congress that session. Rankin was well known as an anti-Semite and white supremacist, and his interest in resurrecting HUAC raised Helen's eyebrows. She was one of just a handful of congresspeople to vote against funding HUAC permanently. And shortly thereafter, when Rankin suggested before the assembly that war casualties were the fault of inept black soldiers, Helen openly hissed at him. Helen seems to have been emboldened to give zero fucks on the floor of Congress thanks to her friendships with powerful men. There was FDR and Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn. And most spectacularly, there was Lyndon Johnson, who was then a member of the House. Lyndon Johnson was never exactly a hunk, but he had a likably rugged presence. And he was a flirt who was in the habit of taking on long-term mistresses while remaining married to Lady Bird. He was just wrapping up one such affair when he met Helen. And many observers believe she swiftly stepped into the vacancy. Helen and Lyndon were frequently spotted strolling into the halls of Congress, holding hands. Maybe more significantly, 
Johnson stepped in to provide the emotional and intellectual support that Helen was missing as her marital bond with Melvin had faded away. Fifteen months after she entered Congress, Helen lost her most powerful mentor when Franklin Roosevelt died. This hit her hard and marked the end of her honeymoon period in politics. From then on, she'd continued to stand up for what she believed in, but with decreasing support from those around her. The first battle came over nuclear weapons. Helen was fervently in favor of the United Nations, which she believed should have a role in regulating atomic weapons internationally, and she believed that the U.S. should share nuclear information with other countries, including the USSR, in order to avoid an arms race. This went against what the new President Truman and many of the other powerful men in government were advocating, particularly as the Soviets drifted from allies into potential enemies. Her persistent pacifism, advocacy of civilian nuclear regulation, and faith in the UN as an international governance body was more than enough to get Helen branded a commie lover, even though she hated communism and had had less of an association with radical leftist groups than many people in Hollywood, including her husband. J. Edgar Hoover had been keeping tabs on Helen since she first started dipping her toe in political waters. And now, he really amped up his investigation of her. Her nuclear position just solidified what the FBI director already suspected. And in his eyes, it was part of a pattern. Always an advocate for the poor and oppressed, as congresswoman of a district with a significant black population, Helen out of compassion but also political savvy, had hired an African-American congressional aide and generally went out of her way to support civil rights. She sponsored an anti-lynching bill, which made it through the House but died in the Senate. Hoover believed that Black communities had been infiltrated by communists and that the civil rights movement was just a crafty manifestation of the red grab for power. With no desire to protect herself by playing the game, Helen became a committed thorn in the side of HUAC and their leader, the vile racist Rankin. A year or so after their first encounter on the floor of Congress, she called out Rankin's HUAC for employing an investigator who had made very ugly anti-Semitic statements in the press. And then she warned the whole of the House that HUAC was giving them all a bad name. We are made a laughing stock, she said. We become parties to the creation of a new Gestapo. We are completing the late Adolf Hitler's unfinished business. In response, Rankin said Helen was clearly following the Communist Party line, which moved House Majority Leader, Massachusetts Congressman John McCormick, to threaten Rankin which led to the two men shaking fingers under each other's noses and Rankin yelling, I'll take the gentleman from Massachusetts anytime. Another time, Rankin gestured at a group of congressmen and called them these communists. Helen stood up and said, I demand to know if the gentleman from Mississippi is addressing me. Rankin ignored her and kept spewing anti-liberal commentary. At the urging of Lyndon Johnson, Speaker Sam Rayburn finally forced Rankin to answer Helen's question. 
Rankin finally allowed. I am not addressing the gentlewoman from California. The incident moved Helen to publish a kind of manifesto in favor of common sense and against the fear-mongering that was using the threat of domestic communism to obscure real issues that impacted many Americans' daily lives. I think we all know that communism is no real threat to the democratic institutions of our country, she wrote. But the irresponsible way the term communism is used to falsely label the things the majority of us believe in can be very dangerous. A couple of months later, the Republicans seized the majority in Congress, and yet Helen was re-elected easily, without even campaigning. Another Los Angeles congressman, Jerry Voorhees, lost his seat. Voorhees had been a member of HUAC who vocally opposed some of the committee's tactics. Helen considered him a friend. He was beaten by a Republican challenger who had successfully painted the sitting congressman as a commie lover. That challenger was Richard Nixon. In his time as a congressman, Nixon's highest profile activity would be as a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee, through which he questioned friendly and unfriendly witnesses in 1947 and helped to nail accused spy Alger Hiss. After the Hollywood hearings, Nixon reportedly offered his services as an expert on communism in the film industry for a not-so-small fee. Screenwriter Ben Barsman, a Canadian-born registered communist who would eventually flee Los Angeles and seek refuge and work in Europe, reported that while he was still in the States, he was approached by lawyer Martin Gang, who told him that a certain congressman was aware that Barsman was a foreign-born supporter of suspicious groups. Gang told Barsman that, quote, This congressman said it would be really regrettable if, because of your misguided interest in unpopular causes, your career went down the tube. In fact, this congressman said you might even risk deportation. But if Barsman coughed up $16,000, this certain congressman would advise Ben and make sure he stayed out of trouble. Barsman heard this and laughed and said, That's a funny amount. Why 16? Why not 15 or 20? Sounds to me like 15,000 goes to the congressman and $1,000 goes to you, the lawyer. Barsman was sure the congressman was Nixon, who represented the district in which the screenwriter lived. He later found out that Martin Gang had approached a total of 10 writers with the same deal, meaning Nixon would have been looking to collect $150,000 for his advice. These kinds of stories make Helen Douglas's steadfast commitment to her ideals seem all the more heartbreakingly naive. It was in her second term that Helen made her boldest protest against the establishment. Another nuanced stand on principle which would be easily twisted against her. When the UK withdrew troops and aid from Greece, the Soviets moved in via Turkey. Truman lobbied Congress to fund aid for Greece and Turkey to fight the Soviets. Helen opposed what Russia was doing, but she also opposed the Greek and Turkish governments. And she thought the United Nations should be given a chance to mediate the matter. 
She didn't think the world should be divided up into commie and anti-commie without concerns for finer distinctions, which is also one reason why she opposed HUAC. She articulated some of her other issues on the anti-HUAC radio program, Hollywood Hollywood Fights Fights Back. This is Helen Gehagen Douglas. As a member of the House of Representatives, I have consistently voted to abolish the Committee on Un-American Activities because I believe that the committee as set up cannot avoid violating our guaranteed liberties. The committee establishes arbitrary standards of Americanism based upon the personal prejudices and whims of its members rather than upon a specific and legal interpretation of subversiveness. This method of procedure opens the floodgates to intolerance and persecution. I believe that we weaken our democracy by adopting measures which are foreign to our traditional concepts of justice and fair play. It would be foolish to pretend that Helen was at the peak of her powers until Nixon came along and beat her into submission. The fact was, a broom was coming along and sweeping most of the country and the culture to the right. Helen refused to be swept, and this caused her to lose power. Lyndon Johnson distanced himself from her. When the 1948 Democratic National Convention rolled around, she was assigned to speak at midnight, about as far as she could fall and still be included in the proceedings. In this context, her run for Senate in 1950 almost seems less driven by ambition, even though she was aware that she was the first woman in the history of California to run for Senate, and more by desperation. She was popular enough in her district that she could have kept her own job in Congress for a long while. But she saw that the more the Senate shifted to the right, the harder it would become for her to get anything done. It seems like she ran for Senate in an effort to protect one seat from the rising tide of insanity. Helen had two opponents in her Senate race. In the primaries, she ran against Manchester Body, the publisher of the LA Daily News, who used his newspaper, which had previously been the only one in Los Angeles that was reliably friendly to Helen, to mount attacks on his opponent. Body was financially supported by William Randolph Hearst, who described Helen's political character as, quote, softly suffused with pink, like the sky at morning when tenderly touched by the rosy fingers of the dawn. Body picked this up, using his newspaper to brand Douglas as the Pink Lady, and implying that Helen was part of a group of dangerous radicals, quote, using the Democratic Party as a beachhead from which to launch an un-American attack against the United States on behalf of communist Russia. Other local papers picked up this thread, with the Santa Ana Register claiming that Douglas had, quote, traveled the pink fringe sufficiently long that whether she actually believes the communist form of government is unimportant. Helen beat Body in the primaries, and by quite a wide margin. This may have given her false confidence that attacks on her supposed communist ties would roll off her back in the general election. But damage had been done. 
Nixon would say that he didn't have to do much to defeat Douglas because the Democrats had done much of that job for him. Judge for yourself. Here's a list of things the Nixon campaign did on offense while running against Helen Douglas. Because California allowed Democrats and Republicans to vote in either primary, Nixon courted Douglas's potential voters before they were even running head-to-head by passing out flyers headlined as one Democrat to another, implying that Nixon was a Democrat, while other Nixon publications led with the question, is Helen Douglas a Democrat? Nixon campaign workers were instructed to describe Helen as, quote, a supporter of the socialist program running on the Democratic ticket, which was untrue, but pretty much went unchallenged. In September 1950, at a Douglas campaign stop in Long Beach, at which Eleanor Roosevelt was the guest speaker, Nixon emissaries passed out leaflets printed on pink paper containing vague but ominous suggestions that Helen Douglas had secret communist ties. Douglas thought it was a silly prank. She'd think differently when she realized that the Nixon campaign had passed out half a million copies of the so-called pink sheet all over the state. In the days before robocalls, a human Nixon campaign staffer would call a voter at home and ask if they knew that Helen Douglas was married to a Jew and suggest that she was just another movie Jew trying to take the country away from real Americans. Sometimes they would just dial a random number and when someone answered, they'd say, did you know that Helen Douglas was a communist? And then hang up. Nixon subtly undermined his opponent's gender constantly by referring to her as his female opponent. At one point, he was not so subtle, claiming she was, quote, pink right down to her underwear. Finally, in perhaps the most genius and devious move, white communities were mail-bombed with postcards in support of Helen signed by the Communist League of Negro Women, a completely made-up organization whose name alone was crafted to strike fear in the hearts of white homeowners. Voters were vulnerable to Nixon's fear campaigns because in 1950, the world was a scary place. The Soviets had proven their nuclear capabilities by launching an atomic bomb over Kazakhstan in August 1949, Communists had invaded South Korea and completed a takeover of China, and Alger Hiss, a State Department official who had played a key role in establishing the United Nations, was accused of being a communist spy. And in January 1950, he was convicted of perjury after maintaining his innocence before HUAC. Richard Nixon led a subcommittee investigating Hiss, which led to his indictment and conviction. And thus, Nixon emerged from the Hiss conviction as a commie-hunting hero, Helen, as a passionate supporter of the United Nations, was further tainted as Red Adjacent. Helen had other enemies, and some in surprising places. Women's groups were skeptical of her because they thought she was too soft on communism. As the country's perspective on the family swung back to traditional roles post-war, 
It was easy for the Nixon campaign to make hay out of the fact that Helen was a careerist who rarely saw her husband or kids, while Pat Nixon was a model homemaker. But more problematically, Douglas unknowingly had a representative of the Chicago Mafia working in, and perhaps working against the interests of, her own Senate campaign. Paul Ziffrin worked for Sidney Korshak, a labor lawyer turned Hollywood fixer and middleman between celebrities and studios and gangsters. Ziffrin would do plenty of seemingly legitimate stuff over the years. He's best known for arranging to bring the Olympics to Los Angeles in 1984. But while he was working for Helen, unbeknownst to anyone, he was under investigation for his role in purchasing on behalf of the mob cheap property seized from Japanese Americans during World War II. Much of this property was in Helen's district, and while Ziffrin was acquiring it, an oblivious Douglas was petitioning the government to allow her Japanese-American constituents access to their frozen assets. It seems clear that Helen Douglas, famous for not kowtowing to special interests or allowing her political efforts to be bought in any way, was a potential obstacle to the gangsters that had bought up a ton of property in her district. It seems like those gangsters sent someone they trusted to infiltrate Douglas's campaign as her fundraiser to make sure she never had enough funds. In fact, her campaign essentially went bankrupt before the election. Meanwhile, Nixon's campaign was flagrantly funded by a different group of gangsters. Mickey Cohen, the gambling king of Los Angeles, organized an event at the Knickerbocker Hotel with the collaboration of Nixon's campaign manager. At that event, Cohen gathered 250 men, who he referred to as persons who are working with me in the gambling fraternity. Those persons were not allowed to leave the room until $25,000 was collected in support of Nixon. In the middle of the election came Helen's most controversial vote. Amongst other things, the McCarran-Wood bill sought to allow the president to detain, imprison, or deport potential subversives and barred communists from working in government. It was as close as Congress got to actually outlawing communism. And Helen thought it was unconstitutional. Eventually, the Supreme Court agreed with her and struck down part of the law. But in 1950, most congresspersons either passionately supported it or thought they ought to go along to get along. Those who were opposed to the bill believed that President Truman would veto it, so there was no harm in voting to pass it. Her colleagues begged Helen, don't vote no. It won't matter the bill will pass anyway, and it will only hurt your campaign and your career. But Helen couldn't do it. She couldn't vote for a bill that she believed was un-American. After this, members of her own party began to turn their back on her. Ronald Reagan, who had been a friend and supporter of Helen's for years, allowed his wife Nancy to take him to a Nixon rally he switched allegiances that day. Where was Melvin Douglas in all this? 
Remember, though he and Helen were basically separated, most of America didn't know that. It was easy for Nixon and co. to imply that simply being married to a man born Melvin Hesselberg was a crime. But Melvin Douglas was still a star, albeit a star who was in the midst of a transition from A-level pictures to B-movies to television, as many stars of his generation were in 1950. Perhaps he could have reminded older Americans of the good old days, before the war, when Helen's mentor, FDR, had marshaled a sense of hope in dark days. After essentially letting Helen do Helen for the entirety of her political career thus far, on the night before the election, Melvin Douglas made a radio appearance in support of, and defense of, his wife. Helen knew, and I knew, the kind of criticism we'd have from the Nixons, the Tafts, and the McCarthys. Nobody discounts the real menace of communism, both in the world and in the nation. But the McCarthys and the Nixons are taking advantage of this menace in their frantic, grasping thirst for political power. I don't think the people of the state of California, or the people of America, like this kind of thing. And the only way to show it is on November 7th, when, in the voting booth, you can vote against what is the most un-American of all un-American activities. False witness against thy neighbor, libel and slander against good and honest public servants. And so, with no modesty whatever, I ask you to vote for my wife, Helen Gagan Douglas, for the United States Senate. I have known her a long time. I have loved her a long time. What is strongest and best in Helen is what is strongest and best in America. All her life she's lived by one thing alone, her love for her fellow man. I know of no better quality in a wife. I know of no better quality in a senator. Melvin's speech didn't work for him or his wife. Quasi-blacklisted, he didn't shoot a movie between 1952 and 1962. And Helen Gahagan Douglas lost the Senate election to Richard Nixon by about 700,000 votes. With this defeat, Helen gave up on public office. While their romantic relationship did not resume... For the sake of the kids, she moved to New York with Melvin, who would spend the next decade on the stage and on TV before reviving his screen career in the early 1960s, winning an Oscar for HUD. Meanwhile, Helen devoted herself to activism, tirelessly advocating for smart nuclear weapons regulation. When Lyndon Johnson became president after the assassination of JFK, Helen was welcomed as an overnight guest at the White House. But when Johnson failed to cease bombing Vietnam, Helen became permanently disillusioned with him. In 1979, Melvin won a second Oscar for being there. And two years later, he died. By that point, Nixon had long since disgraced himself. And by that point, the mid-70s, everything Helen Gahagan Douglas stood for, which hadn't changed since the 1930s, had acquired a new cachet. Reportedly, in the aftermath of Watergate, bumper stickers started popping up all over California. 
which read, Don't blame me. I voted for Helen Gahagan Douglas. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Henry Malofsky. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks this week to our special guests. Craig Mazin returned as Louis B. Mayer and Craig Keller played Melvin Douglas. You can find more information about this episode or other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. Following us on iTunes helps people find the show, as does rating and reviewing us there. You can tweet at us at RememberThisPod, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I'm sick and tired of hearing things